0: Ben has been a construction worker, a public high school teacher, a bike messenger, a laborer. But he says the best job he ever had was as a mover. This was in New York. Part of it, he says, was that the actual work was so straightforward. Part of it was that every day he was entering all these other people's lives, and he never knew where he'd end up. It was so personal somehow, especially when the people hired movers to pack everything for them.
1: I mean, you were coming in at a special kind of time for, for people where they were pretty tense, and you got to see a lot very fast. You know nine o'clock in the morning, you're bringing all these pads and boxes and straps and everything into somebody's house as quickly as possible and taking like a, a very quick look around their life. You get a very good idea very quickly of who they are. It's like being a spy. It felt a lot like being a spy. Yeah.
0: When you're moving uh, people all, all the time, is the thing that occurs to you how similar people's lives are or how different most of our lives are?
1: Well, most things that people move to are pretty much the same. Everybody has a bed and some, or at least in in this part of the country, everybody has a bed and, you know, some books and a lot of kitchenware and, and a, generally a couch and a few other things. Everyone tends to have a stereo. Everyone tends to have a television. And then somebody will stand out for one reason or another. Like they'll have a lot of music, like a lot of CDs, mm-hmm. or they'll have a collection of wines or something. Mm-hmm. that we'll have to be real careful with, but, but, but they don't, there's not that much of a difference.
0: It's like, what it reminds me of is, you know, you know, when you, um, when when you're reading in, you know, people or us magazine or any magazine, like any, any, any setting where, where you see inside the living rooms of the super rich and super famous. Mm-hmm. And I feel like usually when I see that, I just think like, that's it. Right. Like, that's what they've got? There's a coffee table and a right. couple of chairs and a couch and a lamp? Like, 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 that's
1: the best you can do? Like, that's it? But yeah, you just, you'd be moving a couch, and it didn't matter. It was sometimes, again, very rich people. You know, there's only so many configurations for things like couches.
0: One of the moments that was always kind of interesting, he says, was when people's stuff was all loaded into the truck. Everything they'd accumulated in this world stuffed into this tiny space. It's a humbling thing for a person.
1: It's a humbling thing, and they would get they would get very upset often, and they'd be very unsettled by that. And I could sort of understand that, because, like, everything you... In a sense, everything that you'd worked for and sort of decided to find you was now sitting in this truck. Um, and generally, like, if they were around, they'd look at us, and we'd generally, you know, the foreman would say, all right, we're going to go get lunch now, because usually it would be in the middle of the day. Um, But they would be staring at the truck and you'd say, yeah, we're going to go get lunch and we'll see you in Riverdale or we'll see you on 89th Street or whatever. And you'd look at them and they'd pause and there'd be this sort of some kind of, sometimes they'd be cool about it, but sometimes they wouldn't. They'd be like, but you will come there, won't you? (laughs) you They would would say those words? Oh, sure. People said that all the time. Or they'd say, can I ride with you? Or where are you going to have lunch? Or do you have to have lunch? (laughs)
0: From, from their point of view, like, like, like what was making them, like, what's making them linger at the truck? Like, like what is it?
1: Well, I do think it's the anchor, it, I mean, for, it is the anchor of home. I mean, and there's, for that, even for those few hours, especially for people who, oh, I don't know, middle-class people who've always lived somewhere or had a home, you're suddenly sort of rudderless. Um, and I've seen a lot of that where people are just sort of standing around and they don't know what to do with themselves.
0: come into this world with nothing, we leave it with nothing, and on moving day we have nothing. It's an oddly naked moment, that day on which we make a transition from our old life and our old location to our new life and our new place. Which is just one reason why everybody hates to move. It's freaky. It's freaky to go to something new. It's freaky to leave any place where we've been for a while. And the act of moving itself, it's a hardship. Today on our program we bring you three stories of people who did not want to move, at all, but circumstance forced their hands. In Act 1, an act that we call sleeping in mommy and daddy's room, a family finds a way to move without moving, by simply moving back into the house where the wife and the family grew up. In Act 2, deal of a lifetime, a woman buys a house from a man who simply does not move out, ever. In Act 3, to a deluxe apartment in the sky high. A man makes a move, but it takes him eight years to do it. Stick around. You're listening to This American Life from Easy Chicago and Public Radio International. I'm Ira Glass. Back one. Sleeping in mommy and daddy's room. Well, this is the story of people wanting to change and not wanting to change at all at the same time. Of a house that gets built and a house that gets moved, all in pursuit of not making a new home at all. Susan Burton tells the story.
2: I went to Wayzata, Minnesota, to meet Mimi Bendixson and watch three men move her childhood home. Wayzata's just west of Minneapolis. It's a wealthy suburb, hedges and horse stables. And as I drive over to Mimi's, I have a hard time imagining that any of the houses I'm passing could be uprooted. They're sewn into groomed lawns, penned in by giant trees. So I'm startled when I near the top of a hill and see an enormous pink brick house in the middle of a pasture, clearly on its way somewhere. And though it's suspended 12 feet above the ground, jacked up on wheels, there are still flowers in the fixtures next to the front door. I mean, it's it's a
3: really strange sensation to see a house being supported like this. This is Mimi. I mean, it looks fragile in a way to be up in the air. And to me, because the house has personality, it looks kind of lonely and confused I mean it's in the middle of of not where it's not where it should be I keep thinking I I keep adding personality to it and thinking it must just wonder what in the world are you guys doing
2: to me but in the long run it will be thankful I hope it's early in the day just past nine and Mimi's carrying a bakery box tied with red ribbon the movers take a break eat a donut and the house looming over us I chat with Larry the head of the crew
1: we're 40 feet wide main part of the house is uh, 60 feet long, and then on one end has a, a sunroom that extends another 15 feet. And on the back end, a uh, uh, mudroom so-called, uh, and that sticks out 24 feet.
2: And how much does the house weigh?
1: Uh, we weigh 240 ton here.
2: This house is massive by moving standards. Most houses weigh only 100, maybe 130 tons, Larry tells me. The movers finish up breakfast, slip the donut box onto a steel beam underneath the front steps, and as their winches begin to whirr, Mimi tells me the history of the house, which is stranger than you might think. Mimi's parents first built this house in southern Illinois. They lived there for several years, and then her father was transferred to Minneapolis. The family bought some land in Wyzetta and decided to replicate the Illinois house. Exactly. I mean, it's amazing. There's the same.
3: There's the same wallpaper in my bedroom same wallpaper in the kitchen. I mean everything was the same. The colors, the carpeting, the paint. It may sound really silly but we'd only had the house for five years and we loved it so much. And so when neighbors from Illinois would come visit us. They said it was just the oddest thing because you felt like you could walk out the door and walk home. It was identical. So um, it really was like
2: walking into the same home.
4: Uh, the same crew moved us into this house, and they stood at the front door and said, you've got to be kidding.
2: This is Mimi's mother, Adrienne.
4: Okay guys, that bedroom goes up on the right, the living room goes over, that goes in the living room over here. They knew the house, and it was identical. And luckily we were able to reproduce everything. Uh, The wallpaper, the drapes, the carpeting, just about everything.
2: And they lived happily ever after for 25 years anyway, until certain small things began to bother them. Little things about certain rooms. It's as if the house they were living in began to coexist in their minds with a second house, an imaginary house that was just slightly more perfect than the one they actually inhabited. And at some point they decided they wanted to live in that other house. Here's Truck, Mimi's father.
5: And um, we really said to the architect, we've lived in the family room for uh, two houses, I suppose, a total of thirty years. And if this family room was just a, f- a few inches or feet or something different, or the fireplace is set a bit left or right or something like that, it would be perfect.
2: But they found it would be more expensive to renovate than to tear the house down and build another brand new. What to do? The thought of bulldozing the house was so upsetting that they could hardly talk about it. Mimi's mother, Adrian.
4: Mimi had the fourth grandchild, You I mean Mark had the fourth grandchild, and all the others have had a really neat experience, we think, with us in that house, on that location, and I really felt badly that Aidy would never have an opportunity to know that house, I mean, like everybody else, <laughs> and this gave us an opportunity to have her know the house, too. Isn't this silly? You know, think of how, um, how much is in your home until you lose it.
2: Then Mimi's husband suggested that the family move the house, that he and Mimi and their children could live in it. Since the structure was too big to take onto county roads, they would tug it onto an empty field elsewhere on the property, just a five-minute walk away from the original site the site on which Mimi's parents will rebuild their old house, with subtle changes, this fall. What about a house could mean so much to a family? Mean so much that they'd build it three times, scoop it out of the ground, prop it on trailers, drag it through the pasture, carry it with them wherever they go. Architecturally, there isn't anything extraordinary about the house. Adrian and Truck found the floor plan in a magazine. It's a pretty two story, with four bedrooms, a little formal looking. If, in the 1970s, you spent any time in a country club suburb, you drove your station wagon past a lot of houses like this. Adrian offers one explanation for her attachment to the house
4: I don't like to change, and I'm tedious to the point of um, Truck. Anyway, I'm tedious. But when we come to a conclusion on something, we are so married to that idea, and then we don't want to revisit it again uh so yeah, people thought we were strange because lots of friends of ours have been have the ability and the inclination to completely redecorate and re-carpet and do all this thing about every ten years i We don't feel a need to do that, and I don't know if it's laziness or, <laughs> or simply something that we really are very happy with what I think it's we're really happy with what we have, so.
2: And at some level, the reason this family keeps remaking the same house is as simple as they're happy together in that home. They have fun there. This is not a family for whom Sunday dinner together is an obligation. They like being together. And they like being together around their house. When I suggest to Mimi that for many people, moving back into a childhood home might be painful, bittersweet, it's almost like she doesn't understand what I mean. Well, maybe if someone had died there, she says... And there's one more reason why the house means so much. In the movie of this family's life, in the scene where the dying man says, Rosebud, the name Mimi's family would say is, Highcroft.
5: Highcroft. Highcroft.
2: Highcroft.
5: Highcroft. Highcroft.
2: Trucks' ancestors include some old money Minnesotans who owned an historic home called, well, Highcroft, a 40,000 square foot mansion on Lake Minnetonka. Truck pages through a green leather album, showing me photographs. The house had its own own power plant, a commercial laundry on the first floor. It was torn down in the 1950s. The land sold off and divided up into separate plots, just four miles from where the family lives now. Everyone makes sure that I I know about about Highcroft, brings it up early in the conversation. The family clearly feels the story explains something about them.
5: Anyway, the last night in early January 1952, Granddad was leaving for the train station. And 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 the staff of Highcroft, and there was this enormous big house had, you know, generally more than one butler and more than one cook and upstairs maids and downstairs maids and man- and sort of manager of the house and everybody else the chauffeur, they lined up to say goodbye to Granddad, and, I mean, I will never ever forget how broken up I was, to watch this old man who was, uh, uh, eighty about eighty five years old, say goodbye to what was his history
3: you grow up hearing your family's stories this is Mimi again and they're all passed on and you you know stories take on a life of their own there's always been these stories and it probably makes this Highcroft house even grander than it was who knows I mean I don't know but I think it was kind of weird that they didn't think of a way to to save it so maybe that's like a little voice in the back of my head that it's pretty hard to lose something because it's gone forever.
2: There was a choice about Highcroft, and the family believes it chose wrong. And this seems to be more painful than the absence itself. And what they fear is forgetting. Mimi tells me that once something is gone, it's hard to remember it again. That already it's hard to imagine the big pink brick house on its old site. And building the same thing every time is a way of guarding against forgetting. It's almost as if the family thinks that if they lived their lives in different rooms, all of their memories would disappear.
4: There's not one single aspect of that house that is that important to me, but it's what happened in that house, which is why we have built it twice, I think. It works well, yes, but um, it's the things that happened there, the milestones in our lives, the preparations for two weddings, the, you know, the children being born, the baptism luncheons, the Easter, the Christmases, those are the things that really, if we were in a different house altogether, that would all be lost.
2: Why shouldn't you be able to hold on to what happens inside a room? Mimi's family simply takes to an extreme a feeling a lot of people have about homes they've lived in and moved away from. A house can inspire a kind of longing, But you can love a house maybe too much, which was something Mimi had to think about, because she was essentially asking her husband, Mark, to move into her childhood home from his childhood home, which is where they live now. Mimi and I drive out to Maple Plain. It's only 15 minutes from Wyzetta, but more rural and more working class. Low-slung warehouses, a beer distributor, a sign that says, Chainsaw sale on now. We pass Mark's parents' house, the one he actually grew up in, take a left, and we're at Mark and Mimi's house, high on a bluff, looking around at miles of pretty plains and wetlands. From here we can see where Mark's sister lives. She and the rest of his family helped him move this house here, put down the driveway, plant the grass. Mark's so easygoing that if he's upset about leaving this world he's put so much effort into constructing, there's no way to tell.
0: Mimi was very open-minded to move out here with me, away from civilization, and to, to move into my home that had my uh, look to it. And, um,
3: and history to it.
0: Well, and now, I mean, the least I can do is cheerfully f- follow her to our next step.
2: This is as much as I can ever get Mark to say about the move. As the three of us talk, he seems reluctant to bring up anything that might upset anyone. He says he's looking forward to being in a better school district, closer to restaurants, to setting up his music studio. But Mimi notices something he's leaving out. You've never once mentioned the house, like how you feel about the house
3: itself. And I've never even asked you that. Uh Uh-oh, we're going to have to put the house up for sale. I mean, how do you feel about the house? Not just moving, but...
0: I love it. I don't think that's an issue. (laughs) I like this house where we are now. This, This other one's better.
2: This isn't the answer Mimi's looking for. And they go around on this, until finally Mimi points out that Mark would have been happy to stay in their current house. And this would have always been a touchy issue. But this was never my
3: house for my life. And I always was looking to the next step. And moving here was always, to me, coming into your world. For a lot of reasons. I mean, this is where Mark had a single life. This is where Mark dated other people. This is where this, his whole family was involved. This is always been our house, but it's Mark's house. I mean, I'm kind of making it seem like it's black and white, and I will be really sad to leave here, too. But... I'm so excited for the other and have always been dreaming about the next step where um, Mark still has dreams for this place and so that's hard you know I mean he's got paths that he made for the kids to walk in well that's hard to give up you know so
2: Mimi starts to cry and I turn off the tape recorder and she looks out the window and says it's hard to see somebody's dreams not be able to happen there are two parts to a move what you take with you, and what you leave behind. And the hardest thing for Mark isn't coming into Mimi's world. It's what he's giving up. It's hard to imagine moving an entire house, and not many people do it. There aren't firm figures, but by one estimate, 10,000 structures of all kinds are moved each year. The guy moving Mimi's house, Larry Stubbs of Stubbs Building Movers, recently made the Guinness Book of World Records when he moved the Schubert Theater in Minneapolis. To move Mimi's childhood home, Larry started by digging a moat around the house, inserted jacks at the edges of the building, cracked it off its foundation, pumped it up into the air. Then he stuck a complicated network of support beams and wheeled dollies underneath. It took less than a week to pull the house close to its new site. Then Mark and his father got in excavators and dug a big hole, graded an incline down into it. The house gets rolled into the hole. A foundation is built under it. The support system is taken away. As they pull the house into the hole, you can see the wheels turning under it, but its progress is so incremental, so graceful, that you can't actually perceive the move. Unless you go away for an hour and return, as Mimi and I do, to see the house turned at an angle, rounding a bend, the donut box from this morning still sitting upon a beam. Mimi gets out her cell phone and calls friends and family, tells them to come over. It looks like today's the day Larry's going to finish, fix the house in its final spot. I climb up in a truck cab with a mover named Dave, who's winching a cable attached to the house around a giant school. Here,
5: Dave. Alright, did you hear what he said? What
6: he said? Go easy on David,
1: we're just down. You might,
5: you might be done. That might be it here.
1: What makes you think
5: that? Well, we're both letting our cables down. Oh. So let's go find out.
2: And all of a sudden, it's in place, and we're not on a job site, zigzagged by bulldozer tracks, but in a front yard. Mimi's mother, Adrian, arrives and stands before the house. Right where the circular driveway will be. Holding her granddaughter, 80.
4: Just a little emotional as all of a sudden not our house anymore. Now it's now it's this generation's house. It is wonderful. Yeah. yeah, this is not grandpa's house anymore or grandma's house. This is your house. It's in a new spot.
3: and it's kind of a mess, but, and
2: aqua from 20 years ago, but this is the kitchen. Mimi and I climb up a ladder and through a hole poked into the floor of the mudroom. I feel as if we're entering an exhibit, something mounted, a museum piece. The interior of the house is so vintage 70s that it's a little spooky. I half expect one of the girls from the movie, The Virgin Suicides, to lean over the banister in a gauzy prom dress. We stand in the wood-paneled family room, nice, talking about Mimi's plans to redecorate and her memories of the place. This
3: is the room where the picture was taken when Mark proposed to me. We came over and woke my mom up and took pictures in here. It was like 1 in the morning. Um, but this is the room that, for me, has caused the most agonizing over how to make it special and us in
2: a new feel, but not too different. To Mimi, this is the central tension of the project. She's trying to preserve something But change it at the same time. We finished the tour of the first floor and head upstairs. Now, like you know, when you like when you walk up the stairs in your house, and you just sort of know, like exactly how long it's going to take, and sort of—I mean, do you have that feeling, like when you walk up the stairs? And what's funny
3: is, I always walk up and go this way because that's my old room. I never ever would take somebody to the master bedroom first because I've never done that. Which I guess I hadn't thought about till now. But anyway, this is my brother, and my this is the bathroom we
2: shared growing up. I try to figure out a polite way to ask Mimi, won't it be a little odd to be sleeping with your husband in your parents' bedroom? When I finally do, Mimi's surprisingly unfazed by the notion. It simply doesn't bother her that much. In fact, she said, she and Mark have a four-poster bed just like her parents. Mark comes inside with AD, and Mimi takes him to see the view from the kitchen windows. It's the moment in the move when a house officially changes hands, and the new owners walk around whispering, exploring. And what's amazing is that Mimi can actually have this experience in this house, given the fact that she lived here for 18 years. She tours the rooms looking for little reassurances, that it will feel normal here, that it wasn't a mistake to move the house. And what's most comforting to Mimi is that it feels a lot like what it was. It doesn't feel weird anymore.
3: Looking out the windows,
2: it it, it, it doesn't
3: feel odd anymore. I don't know. Doesn't it kind of look like it's the same view? Oh, it's a nice view. But doesn't it just feel like it did? You're facing the same direction and you're looking at the same green and the same trees in the back.
2: Later in the evening, I sit in the yard and think about how F. Scott Fitzgerald set some of his short stories here in the wealthy corners of Minnesota, amidst lake houses and broad lawns. The story Mimi's dad told me about his grandfather's last night at Highcroft has a plot that's pure Fitzgerald. Someone riding away on a snowy night in a Pullman car, taking a last look at the fine old mansion, the receding past. In an actual Fitzgerald story, say Winter Dreams, that past would be lost forever, and at some point the protagonist, and that one, a Minnesota golf caddy, would rub his eyes in a panic trying to conjure it up again, re-inhabit that world, and be devastated by his inability to summon it back. But Fitzgerald would have had to write Mimi's story as a fairy tale. She's done the thing that's impossible, packed the one thing you can't take with you. She's kept the past accessible for her whole family. They have all of the rooms, all of the years of their lives. They can literally step back into something a lot of people strain to recapture. And she's been able to do this because Unlike Fitzgerald's characters, unlike so many of us, she's never left home.
0: Susan Burton. Coming up, how to sell your home, make thousands and thousands of dollars, and never move out. That's right, a case study. It's in a minute from Public Radio International when our program continues. This is American Life. I'm Ira Glass. Each week on a program, of course, which is a theme. Bring you a variety of different stories on that theme. Today's program, How to Move Without Really Moving. Stories of people who do not want change in their lives, but then events force them to change, and how they try to hold on to what they already know and love despite that. We have arrived at Act 2 of our program, Act 2, Deal of a Lifetime. The typical way that it goes when somebody moves is that they move into the new house or apartment, and the old occupant moves out. Sarah Kanick has this story of a situation where the new mover moved in, but at that point the process came to a dead halt.
7: My stepsister Rue wanted a house in Sag Harbor, New York, badly. But the former fishing village is now the artsiest of the tourist towns that make up the Hamptons, and she couldn't really afford it. Then one day she found out about a lovely house on Main Street listed for two prices. The more expensive listing included a house, a shed, and a little garden. The cheaper listing included a house, a shed, a little garden, and Ned. Well, the
8: way I identify Ned is my man. (laughs) People laugh at this, but he really is mine. He's the man that came with the house.
7: The deal was this. Rue moved into her dream house at a $110,000 discount. The catch was Ned. An elderly, sick man who sold the house cheap on one condition, that he never have to move out. Rue lives in the upstairs apartment. Ned lives in the more spacious downstairs, where he will stay until he dies. While Ned is working in his little downtown shop, which sells classical music CDs, Rue gives us a tour.
8: We're coming into um, Ned's portion of the house, which is... um, where he's lived for, I think, 20, maybe 20 years, I'm not sure. Um, And which is good for him, too, because, you know, he's older, it's all on street level, he doesn't have to climb any stairs, and also he's lost a lot of his sight, which is um, one reason
7: why we really didn't want to leave this house. Unlike the mansions across the street, this house isn't big or fancy. It was built perhaps 100 years ago for the workers in the local watch case factory. When she bought it, Rue was 36 and single. Um, The idea that she could inhabit only two rooms of her new house didn't seem problematic. What she did not foresee was that in the space of a year she would acquire a puppy, a husband, and a baby. She tries to focus on the deal's advantages. The cramped quarters have taught her to resolve fights with her husband rather than flee them, she says. And Rue, extravagantly messy in her youth, has now taken to watching Martha Stewart's TV show at 9 a.m. and has learned helpful tips for maximizing space. Still, she can't deny that the population boom in her apartment has made Ned's downstairs look especially attractive.
8: And this is the living room.
7: Is this where you would have the bedroom if you were down here? Would you use that as the master bedroom?
8: Um... Well, actually, I think I would change the whole back of the house <laughs> wow. if I were down here. As as you might guess, I've had a few imaginings of what I'd like to do with a space down here, but um, not too many. I don't like to get carried away with myself, you know, <laughs> prematurely. Um, These are all terrible things to think
7: of. Why are they terrible things to think of?
8: Well, I don't know. I mean, there's just a kind of a <laughs> there's a... Um, there's this vulture-like aspect of it when you start talking about what you'd like to do. I mean, there's no getting around that. Um, when I, how can I talk about what I'd like to do? I'd never get to do it until he's moved on from this world.
9: Well, we are now standing in the second parlor of this house on Main Street in Sag Harbor. And, um... I've lived here since uh, uh, 1985. Um, I sold it uh, to Rue, I think, in 95. And uh, I never expected to be alive this long. (laughs) Poor (laughs) Rue.
7: To Ned, who is 78, selling his house from under himself was an ingenious way to stay in a place he considers home. A pianist who made his living as an editor, Ned has spent his life getting money and then spending it all. By the time he put his house on the market, he was sick and broke. He didn't have the will to move. The Main Street house is the only one he has ever owned. It's crammed with antiques and oriental rugs and reminders of his elegant New Orleans upbringing. A large romantic portrait of him from 1951 hangs in the parlor. In the kitchen is a framed photograph of Stillwood, his grandmother's plantation
9: house. And the little silver coffee set. This... That right here, a little a coffee pot, a cream pitcher, and a sugar pitcher, and a tray. My mother said was from the Civil War down in New Orleans, and it's been buried in the garden to keep General Butler, Spoon Butler, they called him, um, to keep it from him. And I said, "Oh, mother, on the bottom of each piece in here, it says 1893." <laughs> And she said, well, that's a stock number. <laughs> I mean, reality, my mother was not to be, to be moved by this. And when I took the tray to uh, a silversmith in New York to have it redone, he said, has this tray ever been buried in the ground? Because there are all sorts of minerals in it that uh, you only find in the ground. And I said, I told him the story. He said, well, I bet your mother was right. <music>
7: Besides the house and its occasional ailments, a leaky skylight, an overflowing garbage can, what unites these two households is the anticipation of Ned's death. Back when they first negotiated the deal, nobody thought he would still be alive today.
8: He had had a heart attack, and he had had a, a history of heart disease. I don't know how long a history. He had had bypass surgery. And um, then right after the closing, two weeks after the closing, he had another heart attack. And I talked to him from the hospital. And he sounded quite authentically sick, I have to say. <laughs> he did. And that was, that was six years ago.
9: The trouble is, I all of a sudden began to get better. And was, was going around full of energy. And um, I feel... Special perfectly good most of the time. I mean, I wake up and I embrace the day, so to speak. Well, not the early day.
7: (laughs) The contract that binds Ned and Rue has led them to live together, separately. They don't consider each other family, or even friends. They don't invite each other over for dinner or drop by each other's apartment for a chat. When they do talk, their conversation is almost exclusively about the house. Like considerate roommates, they try not to offend each other with their habits.
9: I try to to figure out when maybe nobody is upstairs, and that's when I play. But sometimes I realize they are upstairs, but then I go ahead and play anyhow. (laughs) I'm sure it must bother them, but um, it would bother me. I've, I've played the piano ever since I was nine years old, and very, very sad by the fact that I can no longer read music, because I've forgotten all those pieces that I learned all those years ago. But, I now can sit down and simply play what comes out. And oddly enough, sometimes what comes out is very, very nice, <laughs> it's always very sad. And, um, oh, there have been moving evenings here, let me tell you. (laughs) Not a a dry handkerchief in the house.
7: (laughs) In fact, Rue likes his playing. She's never told him so, but she finds it soothing when the music drifts into her bedroom when she and the baby are taking a nap and he has never told her that he finds her presence upstairs comforting. Still, there are complicated feelings on both sides.
8: I do like Ned, and I do feel like... I feel kind of benevolent towards him, like I'm taking care of him sometimes. He just inspires that in people. And um, But then, he, I, I'm not going to be terribly, terribly sorry when he dies. You know, I'm going to be sorry, but I'm also going to feel some relief. (laughs) And it's, 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 oh, it's very strange. Every time I ask him, how are you doing? Or, you know, take care. I always get this little twinge because (laughs) it's, there's just, there is a twinge. (laughs) A twinge of like, Oh, how how are things going, or how are you doing? And and uh, and it's just this wicked twinge comes over me because I think uh, that I, you know, a little bit like to hear not
7: so great. Do you think he's keyed in to this other conversation in your head?
8: Well, I, as I said, Ned's no fool.
9: I'm aware that um, that the other side can't be all that thrilled that I'm still there. Um, but she's been very nice to me, and I think I've been very nice to her. I think.
7: Well, she she obviously likes you. Well, I hope so, because I like her. but but she's also. Waiting for your demise. Oh, I'm sure. Does it make you feel guilty that you got better?
9: I don't think I feel guilty. Maybe I do. Um, I'm just sorry that um, that that there's Rue sitting up there. She can't help but but wait, <laughs> biting her fingernails probably. But. Um, And it it, it ultimately won't matter to me either now, it's a a done deal, uh, what what Rue feels about it. I don't blame Rue or or anybody for the fact that I spent all my money. And I don't in a way think that that I should be blamed because she spent hers. It sounds heartless, put put this way, and uh, I guess it is. When one begins picking it apart this way, it sounds really quite awful. As as though I, I'm I'm just squelching, the life of a young couple. And now, brand new life.
7: A lot of people would say that Rue looks like the heartless one in this arrangement. That she there she is waiting, for, a gentleman to die.
9: Well, I don't think that. That's why I think this kind of speculation is. Um, is is there's a certain falseness about it that yes, these thoughts flicker across every mind, uh mine as well as hers, I'm sure um but we're civilized beings, and um I did what I thought I had to do, and I also think that she did what she felt she maybe not had to do, but she did what she wanted to do.
7: To maintain their relationship, Ned and Rue have developed a careful communication, devoid of jokes about arsenic, for example, at least to each other. The result is a textbook defense of civil society, a housebound version of Robert's Rules of Order.
9: Well, the only way, it's been very civilized, uh, I think. Rue and I are polite to each other. She doesn't inquires in, into my problem, and I don't inquire into hers. So we don't let our feelings carry us into uh, territory that is uncharted, and really will, will always be uncharted.
10: What territory is
9: that? The territory that she resents the fact that I'm still alive, and I resent the fact that she wants me to die. It's supposed to be that a total honesty is uh, an examining every scrap of the brain Our emotions and whatnot is supposed to advance something. But it usually depresses rather than advances, I think. I I think that we have these rules of society and whatnot for kind of good reasons, that um, better to be on the surface than than not, because it's unanswerable and is territory that I'm unable to explore. And I don't think Rue is able to explore it to any benefit either.
7: Because of his upbringing, Ned comes to this position naturally. But it's remarkable to me that my stepsister, a 70s wild child still known to say things like, virtue is a load of crap, has come to understand the power of polite restraint. In private, of course, away from Ned, she is unapologetic about what lurks beneath their relationship.
8: I don't feel so very guilty about it because I don't feel anything that anybody else wouldn't feel. I know how people are. I'm no worse than anybody. There's no person, I mean, Mar- you know, Mother Teresa could be living in this apartment if she were young with a baby and a husband and not have those thoughts. Okay? I know that. I mean, it seems to me that people waste an awful lot of time having pretenses about what they're supposed to feel when what they really feel is what they really feel. Why not just. You can't, you can't tell life to be something that it's not going to be, that it, that it isn't. You can't argue with it. I don't mind being like just a human being. That's, that's fine.
7: Both Rue and Ned moved into this house, hoping it would be the last place where they'd ever unpack. Ned got his wish, but if he survives for more than another year, a strong possibility, Rue will have to move out. Her two small rooms will become too small once her baby starts to crawl. For now, though, Rue's proud that the five souls living under her roof are getting along so well. And when Ned finally does die, she says she'll be sad. Along with twinges of wickedness, it's a sadness she bought along with the house.
9: there you have my Rachmaninoff period (laughs) well
0: not really (laughs) Sarah Koenig
9: just a love
4: nest
8: cozy with charm like a dove nest down on a farm
0: three to a deluxe apartment in the sky high. Well, one of the producers of this American life, blue Chevney, used to have a job that was all about moving day and people who did not want to face that day. She worked for an agency in New York called project reach out part of Goddard Riverside community center that moved homeless, mentally ill people into their own homes with most of her clients. It took years in April. She went back to New York to watch one of the guys who she knew and liked finally get into his own room.
10: Back at my old job, George stood out from a lot of the other clients. He was immediately easy to relate to. He was more talkative, more expressive, more open with people. One of my old co-workers, Dave Dean, remembers being an intern seven years ago, walking into the basement where all the clients were hanging out, playing cards, not talking much, especially to him. He remembers meeting George.
11: He was very charming, uh, and so the director introduced, was introducing me to the clients, introduced me to George, and George asked if I wanted to play pool, and so we played pool, and uh, he was you know, very friendly, very engaged, was, was going out of his way to make me feel at home as the new intern at the day program.
10: Other clients were capable of that kind of warmth after you knew them for a little while, but very few were so friendly from the start. At that time, George was living on the street, Eight years went by before he was ready to move into his own place again. What took so long? For one thing, like a lot of mentally ill people, he didn't really mind living outside. Ever since the day he first became homeless, two decades
6: ago. One day I just got up and just left the place. I just closed the door and broke the key off in of the lock. And I just took off to the streets. Now that I think about it now, just leave it the way I did leave it shows the signs of a very sick man. No plans, nothing, just close the doctor door and break the key off and just leave. Left clothes, rugs on the floor, you know, furniture, everything, just left it. Mm -hmm, mm
10: -hmm. And you never went back and got that stuff?
6: No, I never went back. I was I was free. I felt like I was free as a bird. I was free. Nothing can, nothing, not no no responsibilities. Nothing. Don't have to pay rent. Don't have to pay gas or light. Go over here, eat what I want when I want it. Go over here and sleep there. I was flying around like a madman. I was so free. Listen to my walk. Dave
10: would see him in the park looking as out there as anyone you ever see on the streets of New York, in a white unitard, white shirt, white turban, and with gold chains around his neck. Dave and other workers would give him sandwiches, try to lure him back to Project Reach Out, where he had come for help in the past. It took a long, long time.
11: And, you know, I kept talking with him in the park and saying, George, come back. You know, we, we did it before. We can do it again.
6: You know, take care of yourself. Come back. Dave said, I don't understand you're free, <laughs> but life is... More than just being free, you could be just as free and more comfortable than sleeping on park benches, hanging out in the subway. And so he talked to me,
11: and he was like, "Oh, I'm not ready. I'm not ready." We we went on like that for a while in the park, uh, and then, for whatever reason, George was ready, and he decided, "Okay, he'll do it." And then he came back one winter.
10: What makes George's case different than a lot of the other people at Project Reach Out? is that he happens to respond really well to medication. Without it, he says he's angry all the time.
6: Anger was like, it was built up, like I was going to explode all the time. Mm-hmm. All you had to do was say something, I explode on it. Boom! Before, my, my, my thoughts was like all over the place. Mm-hmm. You could ask me a question then, and 20 minutes later, I'll ask you if you asked me a question. But now if you ask me a question, you know, I, I try to answer it if I have an answer. You know, we can sit down, we could talk, I can concentrate on what's going on. But I, I, but I was a real grouch.
10: These days, if you meet George, he looks completely normal and great. He smiles all the time. He looks as if he takes time to put himself together every day. Dave says he looks like a college professor, a 48-year-old African-American man with salt and pepper hair, dressing in nice suits or jackets, and looking all studious in eyeglasses. And today he's moving, 40 blocks north, to his own place. bet you're not going to miss that dog. No. <laughs> you right. Dave helps George move his stuff into a van, along with Christina Kane, who coordinates housing for Project Reach Out, and moves everyone. Moving a homeless person usually means carrying a few garbage bags of stuff, for George, it means the van is jam-packed. He has a portable stereo, a TV, and a VCR, things he's bought with disability checks. But the real reason we have to make seven trips up and down the stairs, three people carrying stuff, is his clothes.
6: George, your room's got a big, big closet. Yeah, a big walk-in closet. You're going to need it. <laughs> <laughs> That's the first thing I spotted. I said, oh, <laughs> wow, look a big walk-in closet.
10: For the last year, George has been living in a shelter where he doesn't have his own room, a place designed as transitional housing. At some point, all of these clients have to move to permanent homes, and it's one of the trickiest parts of my old job. Moving day is what they're all working towards, but in many cases, when that day comes, it's been like pulling teeth to get there. Most schizophrenics share this quality with some homeowners. They don't like change. They've barely gotten used to the transitional shelter, and now they have to move. One of the guys I was closest to got so mad at me about moving that I gave him a little pep talk about it every day for months while he just scowled at me before he'd agree to go. He stayed in the shelter for 2 years. Christina's the one who now finds housing for these guys.
12: Some feel like um like we don't want them anymore and we want to, you know, make room for new people and just get them out. And they they have made deep connections with a lot of the workers and they feel hurt when that relationship changes. It doesn't necessarily end or have to end, although some of them do end it. There was a client who who did move and he never came back and he won't see me for follow ups. They do feel abandoned and for a lot of these people it was their first relationship that was consistent and non judgmental and they don't want to lose that.
10: Because of this, during the move, the three of us keep up an ongoing pattern of encouragement and positive reinforcement. We open the door to his new place. Oh, this is so nice, isn't
8: it?
11: Welcome. Welcome. Now, look what just George, you have air conditioning in here. Is it? Yeah.
12: Look at this closet. Yeah. The things that are important to. I guess you would say the average person, like, having a clean place to stay, I try and stress that, look how clean it is, and a lot of them are like, so, like, they lived outside, uh, it's, so, it's okay if it's not clean to them. So that that's a hard selling point to get them out of the shelter, that they we want them somewhere clean and safe. And to them, clean, cleanliness isn't really a priority. If they feel comfortable somewhere, that's the priority.
10: Even though we all know this, in our need to go on and on about how great the new place is, at some point we run low on material and find ourselves saying,
12: George, look at this bathroom, it's so clean.
10: And as we ride up in the elevator, George pines for his old room in the shelter. Well,
6: I loved my little room over that day. Yeah, you, know, yeah. you had to pry me out of it. <laughs> it'll, it'll take a little while, but you'll love this one soon. Yeah. You know? Yeah. You'll, you know, I think it'll take, it'll take a while. You probably
11: won't sleep well the first few nights. You know, um, it's always difficult to sleep in a sort of a new, weird new place, yeah. you know, and that's natural. Right. So that's going to happen, and uh, you know, but I think after a while you'll like this place better, you'll appreciate it, and yeah. then when you go back to visit Columbus Studios, you'll be like, "Dad, I'm glad I got out of here. <laughs>
6: <laughs> I don't know, I can see them yellow walls. I remember the first day I moved in there, uh-huh. I looked at them yellow walls, I said, oh, drab yellow walls. <laughs> Then you couldn't
10: tear me out of it. Once people have moved inside, they sometimes really struggle, and it's all a bit unpredictable. Who will do well and who won't? One guy we moved took six months to figure out how to ride the simple subway commute back and forth to his place each day. But George seems happy with his new room once everything's in it, and the facility is designed for people like him, homeless and mentally ill. The rent is a fixed percentage of his disability check, about a third. There are staff people there to help him if he needs it. But it's really his own place. Two weeks later, I go back to visit George to see how he's doing. He goes back every day to Project Reach Out to visit Dave and get his meds, and to go to his day program.
6: I have it down to a basic science of six minutes. Six minutes traveling time from here to Reach Out. And I get up in the morning, and I do my thing, I wash my face, brush my teeth, comb my hair, slide into my clothes, and uh I look at the time when I say the train is coming. So I press the elevator. that's how cool it is. I walk real cool calm to the- oh, and go Ding! and then I go downstairs and I walk around the corner. And then I get to the train station and I hear the train coming and I can start flying. Boogie, 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 boogie. And I shoot my car through the metro car through the machine and get on the train. And six minutes later, I'm at the corner of Amsterdam, 96th Street, on my way in to reach out.
10: He talks at length about the unlimited metro card pass that he pays for once a month, the pass that lets him ride around the city on the subway and buses as much as he wants, and visit his old buddies in the shelter, which he does nearly every day. The city seems full of possibilities. After we finish talking, George walks me to the bus I'm taking to the airport. He says he's never flown in an airplane anywhere, but now that he knows what bus goes out there, he thinks he'll go out and watch some planes take off sometime. He asks me how I'm doing, off in Chicago, a whole new city. I tell him things are good in some ways, not so good in others. I tell him I miss New York. He pats me on the arm. He says it takes some time to get used to things.
0: Chevney.
7: Gotta move. Gotta get out.
0: Well, our program was produced today by Susan Burton and myself with Alex Bloomberg, Boushevini, and Julie Snyder. Contributing editors Paul Tuff, Jack Hitt, Margie Rock, and Elise Spiegel, Nancy Updike, and Consulary Sarah Val. Production help from Todd Bachman and Mary Wiltenberg. Music help from John Connors and Heather McAdams at the Record Roundup. A quick production note. Let me get rid of this music. In our last story today, the story about George, there is this moment in the story where he says,
6: Go over here and sleep there. I was flying around like a madman. I was so free. Listen to my walk.
0: And producer Blue spent a while trying to figure out what song it might be that he's singing so she could play it right after. And she came up with many possibilities. Here are just a few. This is Earth, Wind and fire it's Got to Get You Into My Life Or is it from Jesus Christ Superstar
6: Tell me what you think about your friends Or, the top.
0: or perhaps Simon & Garfunkel <laughs> Or maybe Crosby, Stills & Nash Lou Reed, and of course our final pick, George Clinton. Special thanks today to Ben Schrank, the former mover who spoke so eloquently at the beginning of our program, to Kevin Baker, Diane Sandi, Amon Shea, Mead Poladovsky, Ronald Melman, Carrie Friedman, Anthony Wilson, and George. This American Life is distributed by Public Radio International. Funding for our program has been provided by Amazon.com, helping you find your next favorite book with over 13 million titles online at Amazon.com. Other funding comes from the Capital Group Companies, investing for individuals and institutions throughout the world, and sponsor of the American Funds Group of Mutual Funds, and from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, the National Endowment for the Arts, and the listeners of WBEZ Chicago, WBEZ Management Oversight by Tori Malatio, who, you know, has his own radio show that he does, back in his living room, about which he says,
9: Oh, there have been moving evenings here, let me tell you.
0: Amara <laughs> Glass, back next week, with more stories of This American Life.
6: P.R.I. Public Radio International.